welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there. Before I launch into the content of this episode, I wanted to give you a heads up. Since October is Domestic Violence Month, I've invited some special guests to speak on this topic. Please be aware that we discuss details during these conversations that may be triggering for some folks. Hey there, everybody. It's Jen from the Empathic Mastery Show, and it's October, at least right now. And uh, as the show is airing and October is Domestic Violence Month. And so I wanted to bring on some really special guests this month to talk about the intersection between being an empath and domestic violence. And as you probably know, one of my favorite topics is empaths and narcissists, because this is such an incredibly big deal. And so I am so excited to be bringing Raven Scott on the show today. Raven Scott is a narcissist abuse survivor and recovery coach, author, and host of Empath and the Narcissist podcast, which I had the incredible pleasure of getting to be a guest on. And guess what? We talked about empaths and narcissists. Raven talks about how to overcome narcissistic abuse and recover from PTSD, codependency, gaslighting, and manipulation. She created a guide to heal from childhood trauma with effective exercises and how to live as your true self with human design 101. She's an ambassador of gain your sparkle back after narcissistic abuse. She's helping empaths heal from their childhood and relationship trauma wounds through her transformational spiritual healing exercises. Her goal is to dispel the narcissist's power one soul at a time. And you can learn more about Raven over at ravenscott.show. And if you happen to be out and about, you can just come on back over to empathicmasteryshow.com to grab the show notes and it will have all of Raven's links. So Raven, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful. And your episode, Empaths Beware, Your Empathy May Be Codependency. It's one of the top listens episodes. We had such a great time. We really did, which is why you're here, because I was just like, oh my God, I must bring Raven on to have this, have more of this conversation. So before we jump onto the episode, you and I were talking a little bit about just how often it, you know, a relationship with a narcissist doesn't start as like a bottomless pit of need. It doesn't start as a disaster. You know, it's like, we don't just hurl ourselves off a cliff. It starts as something more positive. And so I would really love to start at the beginning with your story and just like, how did it start? Where did it begin? You know, tell us your story. Tell us your romance turned nightmare. 
Yes, it has been 10 plus years since I've been out and I was in it for 10 years and it started when I was just a child. Really, I was 17. Uh, We were in a non-denominal church together. That's where I met him. We were uh, volunteering in the same worship band. And growing up, I was raised in Assemblies of God Church. So I was sheltered. I went to the same exact private school. My entire schooling uh, went to college for actually um, a a vocational degree. So I never had like life experiences. And actually, I met him before I even decided what I was going to do, you know, as my career in college and all that. And it really was a really fun time. We had a lot of fun. We, you know, rebelled together. We partied together. We, you know, went out and were fancy together. But it was something that, you know, I met him and I was very like granola girl. That's what they would call me. And I loved to wear Birkenstocks and not wear makeup and just like be super on a drill, you know, camping, climbing rocks. Like that was, that is still being out in nature, my MO. And that was it. But even though it was really fun and beautiful and like I had him up on this pedestal because he had a family that was really high in status in the church. And that was kind of one of my things, like, I guess, like my vanities or my shadows is I wanted to be important, too. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to like up in the status in the church and like I wanted to be somebody right mean something. And so when I connected and we like had a friendship and then, you know, he kissed me all of a sudden when we were just kind of going out as friends, it wasn't even like a real official date. It just was kind of like this very slow, like way. Then once we were together, we did have a lot of fast and furious fun times, you know, rip-roaring around in our early 20s. But like I was sharing with you, the there was just this moment where looking back, I didn't think anything of it because I wanted to, you know, grow up, right? I met him at 17 and he sat me between his gorgeous grandmother and his gorgeous mother, like literally supermodel quality. And I'm sitting there thinking I'm like the ugliest thing ever and I don't have makeup and I just felt super uncomfortable. Like, I can't believe I'm actually sitting here in the presence of greatness, you know, like all this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. around me. And I, he did it on purpose because he wanted me to look pretty like them. He wanted me to desire to do my makeup like them and do my hair and dress and everything. And we were watching an award ceremony and oogling over all the different dresses. And it just turned into a makeover the next day. And then the rest of my being with him, that was the standard. Like women who have chipped nail polish are like the bane of existence. So make sure your nail polish is perfectly kept together, you know, and it just continued from there. And it became something that he can kind of throw back in my face. And interestingly enough, that was the foundation of our relationship. I mean, mm. I was so young, I didn't realize how toxic that was. Well, and you know, you were saying you were raised in assemblies of God and you were raised within an extremely conservative and very sheltered environment. And so, I mean, I'm actually curious Like, I'm like, how did you go from being in Assemblies of God to being in this non-denominational sort of, it sounds like, you know, I'm imagining it was one of those big mega churches with like big rock band and like, you know, all the charisma and all of that. But even that, like, I'm like, how did you, did you break away from Assemblies of God? Like, how did you end up in this mega church? Like, how did you end up there in the first place? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it all goes back to my sister. Um. She broke the mold and went against 
the strict rules and moved out and with her boyfriend and got pregnant before marriage and all that stuff. Really traumatizing to my family. It was traumatizing to me because all of a sudden one day she's gone and she came to my school and said, I love you. I'm sorry I'm leaving. And I was like, what? Like, I had no idea. Wow. Really shocking. Yeah. Really traumatic. I don't even remember the rest of that year. I just remember that day, you know, on the balcony. And so that just kind of spiraled all of our choices of like trying to, they tried to parent me different, opposite. So they felt like, okay, well, this youth group at the current church we're at didn't help our oldest. And it's not really a good environment. They, for some reason, their opinion was that there wasn't a good pastor. Mm. I had no idea what was going on. I was so young. So they switched me. They, they just found that church. They really loved it. So it was kind of like their spiritual journey as well. Mm-hmm. How I kind of ended up over there. Well, and I'm really struck. I actually got a chill as you were speaking about this because I'm like, your whole family in some ways was absolutely ripe for narcissistic abuse in that, you know, as you said, I mean, big red flag of trauma if you can't remember a period of time. And so I'm just struck by how your sister leaving must have been such an incredible rupture to your entire psyche and system that, and then your parents kind of, you know, shepherd you over into this supposedly more healthy and appropriate community and you and your innocence, but also in your heartbreak because your sister's gone. I mean, it's like, it sounds like it was just, you were absolutely ripe for this. It could have been anybody. It could have been him. It could have been a cult leader, like disguised as another pastor, you know, which would have been acceptable, right? Like my parents wanted me to marry a pastor or somebody involved in the church, but that could have been a narcissist too. You're not safe from the narcissist just because they're in a good system. Right. Or they're in a position of power. (laughs) I mean, anything, you know, I mean, there are so many narcissists in positions of power and and certainly, you know, the whole... Like, let's not even, we don't even have to go down that road of just, you know, narcissistic abuse within the church. But um, you were talking about sitting between the gorgeous mother and the gorgeous grandmother and realizing like, and he's directly like manipulating you. He's playing you. Yeah, to, he just sat over on the other sofa on his phone. Like, I got this. Like, she's going to do exactly what I planned I want her to do. Wow. And he's 17. Yeah. So I was asking you before we jumped on about whether or not either the mother or the grandmother were narcissists, because, you know, it's like, I don't think narcissists necessarily are just like pop up like mushrooms out of nothing. Like, I think narcissists learn how to be narcissists. So talk about the dynamics that he was coming from, as you know, it at least. Yeah, well, he had a traumatic childhood. So there's trauma there. Chuck Mm -hmm. box number one for, you know, narcissistic tendencies. And then his grandmother was a world-renowned speaker. I mean, she was huge famous, but she knew like Zig Ziglar. And so like that, she was absolutely in her britches. I would think that everything's surrounded by her. So I think she was a narcissist. Mm -hmm. And the mother was the enabler, always pleasing her mother, the narcissist, and always pleasing her ex or always pleasing her current husband, who is highly, you know, not healthy for the, the kiddos either. Um, and everyone has their journey. He, he mellowed out. <laughs> but it was certainly a pattern. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, many years ago, there's two things that come to my mind. There's that old saying, eat or be eaten. But then also there was a book that I read, God, a long time ago by Andrea Dworkin called On Pornography. And one of the things that she talks about for males is that you basically, the male child in particular is raised identifying with their mother, but at a certain point sees the ways that patriarchy and misogyny are affecting the mother and half and the boy child essentially has to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to continue to be identified and aligned with the victim or if they are going to be aligned with the perpetrator. And that there comes a point where it's kind of eat or be eaten, where the rubber kind of hits the road. Wow! And so it's interesting thinking about him that he had two models. He had his, well, probably three models because he had his grandmother who was, you know, queen bee and then mom, who's the enabler and the doormat. And then probably the father who was also probably more like the grandmother. And so it's interesting. Very misogynistic. Yes. He chose that side. Yeah, very, he chose very that. clearly. And it was crazy in our hard times, right? When we thought that we could work it out. I remember one time there being an intervention in both his parents and it ended up being a huge argument about them and her and they were attacking her. And I was like, well, how did this turn into like getting off solving our problems onto you guys? And now you're both of them were attacking his mom. Oh my so God. Just always put up with it. She always could handle it, but... I guess she was used to it. So you guys were, and as you said, there was that moment in hindsight where you looked at this, you know, where you're sitting there watching the awards show and you realize how abusive and manipulative and in many ways he was starting to groom you. But I'm sort of imagining at the moment, I mean, it's like next day you have a makeover and... You know, you go from being Birkenstock granola girl, which it's really funny. I used to be called granola as well. <laughs> that was actually one of my <laughs> nicknames. But um, you go from that crunchy granola Birkenstocks nature girl to this glam girl. I'm kind of imagining that it was kind of intoxicating and that it was kind yeah. of like fun. It was, a, it was fun. It was a big ego boost. I gained a new mom that I fell in love with more than my actual lover. Like I stayed in the relationship much longer. For her, not him. Yeah. yeah. And it was somebody that something I needed. I needed to fill a hole from the mother wound. I had a huge mother wound from all of the different reasons and scenarios of my childhood, including that what happened with my sister. And yeah, I just replaced my mother with her and she was mine. And it really hurt and broke my mom's heart because I, then I stopped talking to my mom. I isolated myself and I only involved myself with her and his family and his friends. And I only had coworkers as friends, really. I disconnected from all the friends that I had when we were at the church. Right. Well, and that's such a red flag or such an indication of a domestic violence or abusive situation is that isolating and being moved away from your support system and and reality checks. So you're in there. Even if they weren't a support system, they were at least like a little lifeline rope to the outside of his sphere, right? He couldn't, he actually could manipulate them at the end, but he didn't want to. It was like too much energy. So he's like, ah, let's just leave them out there. But every time that a friend would help me, I would come to work exhausted, hungover, because interesting, you bring up that book porn. 
that was his addiction. And he mm. wanted me to reenact everything from all these different movies. Maybe he watched during the day. I don't know. But I was like supposed to be Gumby in high heels and loosey goosey and like drink as many cocktails as you can. So you're fun. Like that's that was the MO. Wow. I would be dry. I would be exhausted. I would be hungover. I'd come to work peaked and everyone would be like, what's wrong with you? Like mm. at mm-hmm. first. And then it was just a pattern. Every Saturday I'd show up like this. And I, every time I'd be like, I just, I don't know what to do and this and that. And I'd share and they're like, that's not normal, honey. That's not right. That's not normal. Right. So then I'd come back and say, you know what? So-and-so said that this is not normal and you need to treat me like this. And he would take a good solid hour, maybe two hours and dream and defa- devalue and discredit that person's character without even knowing them. He would just come up with all these, you know, arguments. Like he was in a courtroom against them. And all of a sudden I would be mad at my friend and I'd be turned against my friend and I would lose that friend. And then Mm. I'd be more isolated. Wow. And that's how they do it. It is how they do it. Well, and you bring up another piece, which is porn addiction, which whole other road to go down, dated one person at one point in my life who was a porn addict. And it is so lonely and so awful because they are not having a relationship with a real woman. There's no intimacy in it. It's such an incredibly insidious addiction. And it's it's just so nasty and, 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 and so harmful. Abuse towards the lover, right? So yes. Like I, when I got out, I had a lot of, most of my PTSD was around that. Anything that would trigger that, I would feel literally... Jennifer, my like body, like which now I understand just from feeling this, our bodies are not just physical. They are like magnetic and enter. And I would feel it stretch really far and then contract and stretch really far. And I'm like, what is happening right now? Like, I'm like, feel like I'm hallucinating, but PTSD episode just because of that sexual abuse. And they do, they, it's just one of the ways that domestic violence, you know, emotional and sexual, I think is the most insidious. The yes. things that are really hard that, you know, bring evidence against in a court or if you need to file any type of restraining orders, it's extremely, extremely difficult. So you really have to know the signs and get help, you know, get help to figure out how to get out and know what you're dealing with. Right. Well, and so often as empaths, it's also like you think it's consensual, like you think you're going along with it. And as empaths, you know, one of the challenges that I think happens for empaths is that as we pick up the thoughts, feelings, energy, sensations, and everything coming from the world around us, that includes sex. And that includes sexual pleasure. And so you get this incredibly intoxicating, ecstatic looping that's going on where even if you're not physically experiencing pleasure yourself, you're experiencing their gaze of you and you're experiencing their pleasure. And it can be very confusing to realize that you're not happy with this. It's not cutting it for you. And it's dehumanizing because there are so many. And then of course, you know, all of the layers of social expectation and pressure and like, and that interface between the porn star versus the movie star at the awards ceremony. And just like what that ideal standard of beauty is not to mention just the whole idea of our culture and how obsessed with the male gaze, the culture is 
it's like you're getting validated, you're getting rewarded, you're getting acknowledged. And I mean, it sounds like he was a brilliant, it sounds like he was a very intelligent, is a very intelligent Mm. man. So he really knew how to manipulate you. He did. Yeah. He did. And I, I just kept drinking because I thought that I w- it was my problem. And anytime that he would get bored, like he didn't feel anything because it wasn't because of me, because of his addiction. And he was probably doing other things during the day. Right. But he always blamed me. And sometimes, not sometimes, every time he would be mad at me and, and he would remove his love from me. That was always a number one thing he would do to manipulate me into doing whatever he asked. And the second one was he would take, remove gifts from me, not like um, an actual gift, but like he would always have some type of fun thing planned, like a vacation or something like that, a timeshare. And he would remove that from me because obviously in his mind, the only point of going there was to have that type of sex and like fun, not nothing more like not quality time or time away bonding. And the third one was, you know, one time he locked me out only in my undergarments outside on our balcony. And there was no escape access, no way to get in other than to just sit there like beg. And he loved it. He just sat there and watched me beg. Wow. And it was just like the control and the sadistic control is what yeah. they thrive off of. Yes. Well, and just feeling, I mean, we know the whole sort of egomaniac with an inferiority complex and just really like incredibly wounded people do this kind of stuff, but it doesn't make it any better when you're going through it. I mean, oh, what a hard story. You had said, you know, that you were starting to see that things were not working, but your loyalty to his mother kept you there. Yeah. The family unit of being the number one girl, I was her favorite Because she had three, a couple other, I won't say the exact number. She had a couple other sons and girls were starting to come into her life as well. But I was her first and I was her favorite. And I was like second to Madre, right? So I was in charge when she was gone on vacations. It was me. I was the leader and I loved it. That was Mm -hmm. really stroked my ego. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I finally belonged somewhere and I was important. Yeah. Yeah. So we. I stayed a long time for her and I even stayed in contact with her after I cut contact from him. And then me too, hashtag me too happened and she blamed me for it. And how could I make such a mess? And I was like, are you serious? And I just said that and I blocked her. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I've been chasing again, this person who is only self-centered and of course is going to defend her son no matter what. So what am I doing? Why are you doing? me along. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like well, was another little like control tentacle that he could have had. It's because of course you talk amongst your family. Well, and just like how insidious and just like all of the different layers of the ways that our loyalty, the ways that love gets interwoven with gaslighting, that it's not just cut and dry. It's not just like, oh, well, this is a bad relationship. Let's get out of it. So it sounds like you were really starting. So did you guys get married or did you guys just date for a long time? Did you have kids? That's a funny one. I forced the marriage because I thought that would fix us. Oh. I never wanted to get married, but thankfully huh. we did not have any kids, no children. Thankfully, thankfully. 
that was towards the very end. And, you know, that was the last straws. He would never have them. So I was like, and I was so young the whole time. I'm like, I'm not going to have kids. I'm fine with not having kids. And then 27 hit and I was like, I'm not fine not having kids. Mm -hmm. But I was pushing, I was trying to fit that round peg into the square hole. And yeah. he was not going in it, thank- no. thankfully. Yeah. I mean, I look back at some of the relationships where there was like a fundamental power struggle about something like that and where the relationship just basically imploded. And in hindsight, I am just like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. I did not go there. I also just want to make an observation because I'm just thinking about this. I have never in the entire time that I have either been on a podcast or recorded an interview with anybody discussed the book on pornography by Andrew. Dworkin. It's like, and I got this guidance to mention this book. And the fact that you were dealing with a porn addict, like this is the first time I've talked about porn addiction on this show. And I'm like, oh, and the thing is that if you've never been around porn addiction, it's something that I think it really can take you by surprise. So I'm kind of excited and also sort of like, wow, spirit is amazing that This piece of the equation came out because I think it's a really essential part of the story that we don't always talk about. It is important. And you may not have evidence that they are an addict, but if they are not treating you with love and devotion and they're kind of just going through the motions or trying to make it a party out of it or like, this is exciting, let's do this or you know, I just read a book and that guy was like all into like extra stuff, threesomes and things like that, which are beautiful and wonderful. If everyone's happy and consensual, right. they can be a spiritual connection also. But if it's coming from this place of like, let's just have more fun and you don't feel comfortable. And then they keep pushing. I think that's the thing too. Like I was reading it. I was like, this is it. Like they ask for it. And then you say, ah, I don't know, because you don't want to say no, because then they'll be really mad. Like, I right. don't know. And you don't feel comfortable. And then they just keep pushing it. They're like, come on, all this. And they're like, they like taunt you. They like peer pressure you into it. And that's abuse. That is abuse. Well, and it's not, you know, it's funny. I had a, I have a dear friend and she had another friend who saw like they're at this gym and there was this guy that was at the gym. And so the friend was like, Hey, maybe that guy would be a good guy for you to date. And so she kind of like, you know, kind of, and this was a married woman, but my friend is single. So she kind of finagled it and was kind of like, Hey, come check this guy out. And so they went out on one date and my friend was kind of like, uh, not exactly, you know, not quite right. It wasn't, you Did know, she like, know he was married. No, no, he wasn't married. The woman who fixed them up was a married friend who was sort of vicariously imagining that they'd be a good couple. So my friend goes on a date with this guy and it's kind of like, meh, but she's like, I'll give him a second chance just because sometimes people are nervous. Sometimes these things, she goes on a second date with him and he is like, doesn't believe in woo, doesn't respect alternative healing, like has a completely different way of looking at things and just kind of is like, doesn't really care about what this woman is saying or doing or thinks. And so at that point, she was kind of like, I probably this is not working, but her people pleasing came in and she went on a third date with the guy. But at the, at the end of the third date, she was kind of like, no, this is not working. You don't like the same things I like. This is misaligned. We're not appropriate. This guy, and this is a man who's probably in his seventies, 
is behaving like an absolute petulant baby right now because she is refusing to answer his texts and does not want to go on another date with him. But instead of just accepting that she's been like, this is who I am and this is what I want. No, I'm not going to go home with you and have sex. He is like, but I like you. You should just like me too. And I was commenting to her about how somebody who cannot hear what you are saying does not care about you. They care about their fantasy of what they're going to get from you. But it's like whenever you're around somebody who does not respect your no, that to me is like the biggest red flag. Fortunately, in her case, they didn't get intimate. They didn't really go anywhere. And when she was like, this guy's a loser, she like blocked him on her phone and it's over. Other than that, now she sees him moping in the pool. <laughs> behaving. Like, I'm just like, dude. You know, like, come on, grow up. But the thing is, men are, I mean, I'm going to sound sexist here, but I think males more so than females are socialized to be petulant and to be pouty and to be like, to feel like they didn't get what they wanted. I mean, I mean and yet still in the generations of my children now, it's like, I hear this whole like thing being carried out on, you know, they watch YouTube a lot. So there's these, what, 20 something, 17 year olds saying, oh, if a boy is picking on you, they like you. And I'm like, no, 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 for those kind of boys all the way down in grade school. Don't listen to those YouTubers. Like this needs to stop. This it, is not. Okay. I mean, I was given, I was being fed that load of absolute CRAP. Like when I was a child, I mean, I remember that, oh, he's just jealous of you or, oh, he's teasing you because he likes you. It's like, no, he's teasing you because he's a jerk. Don't give him the time of day. And yet our entire, we live in a culture that even now is perpetuating this idea that when a male is behaving or anybody, a romantic suitor is behaving like a jerk, that's because they like you, not because they lack social skills and they don't have any emotional intelligence. Yeah, 100%. So let's go back a little bit to the story because it sounds like, you know, there was the period of time where you were getting more and more uncomfortable and you were realizing you were getting more and more uncomfortable, but you were drinking, you were trying to find ways to enable it. You were trying to find ways to kind of like keep on keeping on. Justify it. Yeah. When, what was the pivot? Like, what was the moment you woke up and you opened up the cellar doors and you came out and you discovered that you were in the middle of a tornado, you know, like in the wake of a tornado? Like, how did you know? I mean, I tried to leave seven times. So every time I tried to leave, I knew, but that wasn't like a opening up the cellar doors. That was like a little like poke, like, come on, mm-hmm. get out. This guy's not right. He's not listening to you. And it would always be after the encounter, you need know, a nightly encounter and then whatever consequence he did. And then me approaching it saying, you know what, let's work through this. And then him berating me more. And then I finally stand up and say, you know what, I'm tired of dealing with this. And I would pack my stuff in a little duffel bag. But at the very end, when I finally realized there was two instances, one was emotional and one was physical. I came back from a trip uh, with my family. They, all my cousins have wonderful, beautiful children. So many of them running around happy, joyful. And I came back from the trip and it was rare. I didn't talk to my family like rarely ever. This was after we got married. So they were all at the wedding and at the wedding somehow spirit led me to say, Hey, if you ever go to Washington, I'd love to go. I don't even remember saying that. And she remembered. So she said, okay, I'm going to Washington. You want to go? And I'm like, 
I don't remember asking, but sure, why not? So that was complete divine guidance there. And so I came back and I expressed how wonderful a time I had. I wasn't trying to convince him to have children. I was just expressing my trip emotionally. And he immediately just went in on how they're breeders and they're horrible people. And they have all these kids running around, filling up the world. It's already too full. And it's just on and on and on. And nothing positive came out of his mouth about listening to me, acknowledging me or hearing me. Mm -hmm. And so I knew in that moment, he's never going to listen to me. Like he's never going to connect with me emotionally. And maybe it's because I was older. Maybe it was because I'm a Saturn return. But if I click then. Mm. And the second one was when we got in an argument after that about something. We both were drinking. I was just fed up with his BS. And um, I said something. I forget what happened. There was words said hands, you know, hands were grabbed. My He grabbed my wrist and he wouldn't let go. And he's grabbing it tighter and tighter. I'm like, I don't know what to do. What should I do? He's not letting go. I've never encountered him really being physical like this. He just was horrible mentally. Yeah, so I slapped him. I was like, well, I got to shock him off me. So I slapped him in the face and then he slapped me in the face. And I was like, okay, that is uncalled for. And I said, this is, we're not healthy. This is not healthy. We need to go to therapy because this was me trying to continually fix our problems. Mm -hmm. Getting married. I do this. Oh, if you just do this then everything will be better. And I kept doing those things because I'm very good at listening and following through. I'm very smart. I'm I'm very disciplined. And so when they didn't work and I've done everything I could for all these 10 years, uh, you know, it's, it was time to find professional help to find therapy. And that was not at all what he was going to sign up for. And actually now being in the narcissist world, like speaking and hearing and all this education, it's actually a bad idea to go to counseling uh, together as a couple with a narcissist because they'll use all of that information against you when you get back in the house in an argument. So it's actually better if he just go or she all on yeah. their own and you go on your own and you do your therapy on your own. You remind me of, interestingly, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of struck by some of the parallel, like I was in a relationship with a, I was engaged to a porn addict and <laughs> And we were doing, and we were doing, um, group, we were doing couples therapy, but we were doing couples therapy with his therapist, his personal Mm -hmm. therapist, who was also, he was also in group therapy. And I had the experience of not just the information or like him being able to make me wrong and be like, you did this the wrong way. You're not doing therapy correctly. But the thing was because the dynamic between my ex and the therapist was so lopsided, the therapist and my partner were constantly ganging up on me in therapy sessions because I was already fairly educated about certain things. And I had a really good personal therapist. I said, I think there's a power struggle. I mean, I said, I think there's something really wrong here with the power differential that, you know, you're doing group therapy and private therapy with this person, couples therapy. This is in out of balance. And the therapist was like, no, there's nothing wrong with this. And, and thank you, God. I recognized the therapist's bad boundaries. I mean, when he was telling us about the sex toys he was using with his wife as a suggestion for how we should be having sex, I was like, 
this is not appropriate information. I should not know this information about a, my psychotherapist. Like, yeah. I don't want to know about the brand of sex toys you're using. And, and um, suggesting them in the first place, if he knew he's treating somebody with a porn addiction, I don't. Yeah, I think it was just an absolute uh, dumpster fire. But, mm -hmm. you know, just hearing what you're saying, I'm like, yes, it's couples therapy. And the other thing is that I've seen so often is that narcissists know how to play the stranger in a way that they really do look good. And a lot of times they can like pull the wool over somebody's eyes if they're not really savvy to the narcissist patterns. Yeah. And so it really does look like the empath is the one who's being unrealistic and unfair and pushing the boundaries and all of that. So did at that point in time, you know, it was imploding it wasn't going to work. You were realizing it was imploding and it wasn't going to work. You had said you had tried to get out like seven times before. And I know yeah. from what I know about domestic violence, like that is not uncommon. It's like, it's not like most of us just go, okay, I'm going to end this relationship now. I mean, I stayed in gay. I, after we broke off our engagement, I continued to date this man for an entire year. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so how did you make the exit? Like what allowed you to actually break free? Yeah, I needed to make a legal commitment. I knew in my heart because every time it was with a friend, with my grandmother, with a, a family member. I mean, I think I've went to all the people I've exhausted all their homes and it's embarrassing. So yes. understand that it's natural to try. The average is seven times to leave. But I also experienced and understand that it's embarrassing. So you don't want to go back to the same person like again, like, oops, can I come back and stay with you again? Because a lot of people don't have the emotional capacity to know how to guide someone out of a really complicated situation like that. So they end up on accident, maybe shaming them on accident, you know, doing different things that kind of push you back towards your abuser. Because you're like, oh, my God, I don't want to deal with this again. Like it opens up all your childhood wounds. So it's like, you're not ready for that when you're already in fight or flight. The right. So for me, I needed a legal commitment. I needed to sign a document. I knew, and I was planning on going to therapy with him and we could work on our relationship, but I knew I had to physically get out of the house because he was starting to get physical. That was like my lines, like, no. And then spirit showed me in the bedroom afterwards, like this dark, cloud lights on everything like this dark misty cloud over the entire coming down from the ceiling and I just felt like when I closed my eyes I felt like I was being pulled into this dark vortex so I was like I did not know anything about energy or any of that stuff or spirits or any of that um, but I knew that that was not a healthy environment to be in so I found somebody that I could get an apartment with Again, Divine really connected me real quickly, was able to get out in two weeks, but I had to sign a lease. That's how I committed to myself. I was not going back. So I like legally signed a lease. Wow. I was thinking, I believe, you know, you write about the misty cloud in your book. Two weeks 
too. Just what a miracle that, you know, you were just guided out of there. And, you know, you say something that I just want to pull back out about people don't always know how to support or shepherd somebody out of a domestic violence situation. And just like the things like, and I think also if you haven't been there and you've never been ensnared in the gaslighting, in the, all the ways that we're social and we're, and just the socialization to try to make it work. I think that friends and family can also be like, well, why don't you just leave? Or like, there's that kind of level of like, what's wrong with you that you're choosing to stay. And yet I know that there are so many factors that make exiting the relationship, a journey and, and a process, not just a one day you just decide to get out of there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're so entwined. You feel like I always reverse hoovered myself back in with felt like I was missing out. I was missing a piece of me. I overreacted to the argument and yep, they just, it just pulled me back in and I would apologize just because I wanted to back in my little comfort zone. Well, in the over, you know, that self, the gaslighting, it's like it starts with being groomed for that gaslighting and that groomed for, you know, as an empath. And so many of us from the time we were very tiny have been told that we are overreacting, that we're taking it too personally, that we are, you know, being too sensitive. And so I think it's very easy as an empath to gaslight ourselves when especially if the violence or the challenges are not overt, like, you know, cause that's the other thing we have culture that makes domestic violence look like black eyes and very physical abuse. And when it's much more insidious, when it's much more energetic, when it's much more psychological, it's very easy to think, am I just overreacting? Am I just not being the sexy party girl that I'm supposed to be? I don't know if you had this experience, but for me, you know, is this just my sexual hangup? Like, am I just being stuck? And I'm sure other people have probably experienced these confusion, even if they did have experience with somebody else or one other person. I mean, I guess for me, it was that was the one and only I knew. I didn't know any better. I just, you didn't know any better. Yeah. Any better. I thought that's how it is. And even though people told me no, no I didn't experience anything better and, or different. And just like when you have a narcissistic parent, you don't know that that conditional love is not correct love. Like that's not true love. Yeah. And you just don't know any better. So therefore you fall into the trap of a narcissist lover because you think conditional love is love. Absolutely. So I'm curious, you've spoken quite a bit about the role alcohol played in this relationship. So was the alcohol simply something that was like you were like in the role of sort of codependent and kind of like enabler and you were a drinking buddy. And once you got out, you, you know, alcohol just kind of like, you know, burned off like morning fog or is recovering from alcoholism part of the journey for you? Yeah, recovering from alcoholism was part of the journey for me. I did not need to go to AA. I probably should have, but I was stubborn. But thankfully, I had a partner who was 100% dry. So that was like my AA sponsor, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you will. But yeah, it started out partying. It started out fun. And we were legal by, you know, we waited till we we're 21. But then it was like mixing different things and drinking all night. And it just became, it was fun. And then it became for me a numbing. 
When mm-hmm. I thought I was drinking to have fun, I was really just drinking to numb to like pass the time. Hopefully he'll be done sooner or later. Like, or maybe, you know, subconsciously I was probably hoping to pass out, even though I would have repercussions when I did, at least I'd be passed out and <laughs> I wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. So these are all these different things. And I started hating my job, but he said, no, we need your money. We need you to stay at that job. So then I would drink during the day at work because I hated my job and it just like got more and more. And of course, he drank all the time. We woke up drinking all all day long. Mm. So it, for me, it was hard. I was out and away from him immediately after. And I was drinking at least one bottle a night of wine just to kind of like numb the pain. Because you, you go through that loss. You go through the morning. And I knew I would feel like I was going to get pulled back to him. So I had to numb that even more. And Yeah. Well, and the loss happy. of your sister. Like I'm imagining that unaddressed wound like that was a tragic loss. And then even though getting out of this marriage was a good thing, it's still gonna hurt to break a bond with somebody you've come to rely on so much. So you were self-soothing, self-medicating with wine and just taking care of yourself. Where was the point of pivot? Or like, at what point did you decide this is no longer working for me? I need to do something different. I think I just gradually drank less and less. So a few weeks later, I met my uh, soulmate partner who I'm with today through a divine rebellion of mine. I rebelled against my job. So I quit. Well, I didn't quite quit, but I wanted to start a business. So horses was my passion. I thought that was something I really loved. Like, let's do it. Let's start a horse business. So I started that and that's how I met him. And Then, of course, I was heavily drinking on our first date. He always jokes and reminds me of that. And I had a headache from that or hangover, whatever. And (laughs) I was a mess. And yeah, it just because he was dry, uh, I just gradually drank less and less. I mean, I Uh uh had a glass or two. And then the real, real catching point, that's what I'm trying to think back. How much was I drinking? I don't remember. I feel like I wasn't drinking every day, maybe once a week. But I guess I'd have to ask him. I don't remember. (laughs) I, I, you know, we got married and then I got pregnant. So -hmm. that was, of course, I was like, I'm very healthy. I'm not going to drink at all when I'm pregnant. And that was my spiritual awakening. So Mm -hmm. finding out that I was having a girl. And that was the thing. I was like, hey, God, like if I'm to have a girl, like if this baby ends up being a girl, I've got some serious work to do. Mm -hmm. It's not happening again. This Mm -hmm. pattern stops with me. And we got the ultrasound back and she was a girl. So it's like, buckle up. Here we go. (laughs) Wow. I do wonder in hearing your story, if some of your alcoholism was actually like empathic, empathic bleed through, like you were partnered with an alcoholic and you were sort of, you know, and you were kind of like co-regulated to that drinking. And then when you partnered with somebody who was not abusing themselves that way, even though you might have had the tendency, it was all like the momentum of that other person's energy, kind of like in the same way that you were sinking with the one, you were able to raise yourself up with the other. And I actually really do believe that that is one of the things about empaths is that we are influenced both by bad people, but also we can be influenced greatly by good people. And so it sounds like that was really the universe just offering an alternative. 
also even wonder in terms of just where you were at in terms of your journey of recovery, whether recovering from narcissistic abuse you instinctively didn't end up in the big, big, big halls of AA. Because if you're in Southern California, I mean, the AA meetings are like, there are rock stars there. But I'm just wondering if in some ways, like for you, not being in another environment with a bunch of very charismatic, influential people, was almost like you needed to do this journey for yourself. Yeah, I really never felt the pull to have to go. And yeah. I might have been in denial that I was, but he certainly reminded me that I was. So mm -hmm. he brought out the truth, but I still didn't feel like I needed, I need, I didn't need that because he was that support for me. There was no uh, budging of having him join in with me. He's like, oh, thank you. Totally yeah. rock solid in that. Yeah, very rock solid in that. Well, and I also know, like I know for myself, I do not identify as an alcoholic because while I have abused alcohol, I never experienced the sort of being pickled. Like I've not experienced, like the people I know who are truly, who really have had the experience of being an alcoholic, the thing that at least from my perspective, that really, that's sort of like where the rubber hits the road is that once you start, you can't stop. For me, I was more of a co-alcoholic than I was necessarily. Like I would drink with people who drank, but it was not, sugar was my personal drug of choice. Like that was the thing I was powerless over. Um, and so I'm just really hearing, like it sounds like you didn't necessarily go through the insane, miserable cravings where you just want to chew your arm off for a bottle of wine. Yeah. I mean, I could stave it off with, you know, a glass or a glass mm -hmm. of scotch and I'd be good. Yeah. But then as time went by, like now, I don't know if it's because I'm older or I'm just clean of it. Like I can't drink any of all that stuff. It literally like feels like poison in my body. And like, I feel physically sick. sick. My experience has been is that as I have cultivated and done all this work on my energy body and doing all this trauma work and this healing work and everything, um, that alcohol has become less and less and less and less appealing. And where it used to be that I could be in a social gathering and just be like, I could take it or leave it, but it's not really a big deal. Now it's like, I honestly cannot recall like, I, I'm like vague, like, I'm like, when was even the last time I had an alcoholic beverage? I don't even know. It just faded out of the equation for me. And interestingly, I'm also partnered with somebody who does not consume alcohol at all. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So our empathic abilities can work for, for us. <laughs> they really can. We can. We can imprint on the bad and we can imprint on the good. Yeah. <laughs> Raven, this conversation has been, I could talk with you about all of this for hours. And, you know, just this conversation has just been so delicious. And I, we haven't gone anywhere near human design. And at some point, if you're willing, I'd love to bring you back for a human design conversation. Yeah, that's definitely a separate yeah. episode. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess... There's two more things that I'd love to hear from you. One piece is just sort of like the light at the end of the tunnel. What What's on the other side of the journey that you were on? Because it certainly sounds like you've been put through the ringer. What does life look like for you now? Life is abundant for me now. Life is healthy and happy. It is drama free. It is 
consequence free. The love that I have now is not a push or pull. It is, you know, communication and working through things versus punishment and manipulation into what, you know, they want or what I want. And it's been a beautiful growth process to even see myself that I had some narcissistic tendencies that I picked up from living in the environment that I did as a child. And then being able to see that and clear that out and work on it. So Mm. it's just beautiful. And, And I've really transformed from this shy, shrunken people pleaser into a thriving big voice box, no matter what relationship it may blow up, you know, family or not, you know, to to the cause of educating people that narcissist abuse is not okay to put up with. You can leave, you can draw boundaries and find your power within yourself. And that's really what I've, my journey has been, it's finding the power within and everyone else has that as well. And so, yeah, that's my cause is to help people sparkle from the inside out after narcissistic abuse. And I'm imagining there's at least one listener who is struggling in a relationship with a narcissist right now. I guess I've got two questions. First question is, what is the first step? Like, what would you suggest as like the first, like a baby step or like the, the first thing that somebody could do to start moving towards health? My favorite and the first I really think is important is to connect with your inner child, that inner person that is you, that is wounded from way back when maybe you were six or seven. We all have wounds from that part, especially if we're attracted to a narcissist. They're there even if they've been covered up by big piles of excuses and band-aids and all the different things to numb us. So healing yourself through, I have an inner child meditation that's free on my YouTube channel, Raven Scott Show. You can just connect with them with doing things that bring you joy. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the times in that relationship, you're doing everything for the partner to make sure that they're happy. So there's no conflict. You walk out eggshells. But if you just like give yourself the freedom and time and space alone, sit with yourself, and to like reparent your inner child, to hold them and to heal them and to invest in them, you will find you will grow stronger and you'll be able to stand up for yourself because you're now your own parent. Because a lot of times we're operating out of this wounded child as an adult in an adult body. I mean, even the narcissist is operating out of this wounded child mode. So the first step is to heal that wounded child so you can move forward, you can grow up, you can evolve and transform. So that's Mm -hmm. the first step I recommend. And I so agree. I mean, when I see narcissists, I generally I'm seeing somewhere between the ages of like three and six, but usually it looks like a five-year-old to me. And the thing is, if we don't deal with that wounded child, they are going to be the one who's driving the bus and they can't even reach the foot pedals. They can't see over the steering wheel. They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Like... It is not appropriate for the five-year-old to be driving the bus. I love that analogy because they are hitting curbs and mailboxes and people and they are just destroying everything. They are destroying everything in their wake. And they're also, you know, the conclusions that we form about reality as five-year-olds are not accurate. And when that part of us is dictating everything, we're seeing the world through a lens that is usually extremely distorted, which is another reason why I'm 
such an, I'm in complete agreement with you, like heal the inner child and learn to parent yourself. So one final question is, if you could tell the 17-year-old Raven, the the 25-year-old Raven, the 27-year-old Raven, like if you had a message for each of those parts of yourself, what what would you want her to know? I would always want her to know that you are worthy of whatever dream or longing that you're longing for. You're worthy of that, but it's not with this person and it's not with that person. It's not with that situation. It's not with that career. It's already within you. So yeah, I would just share constantly, like just hug yourself, hold yourself to know that you are, you are not a loser and you are not worthy of this, putting up with this crap, you know, you, cause I would always think like, oh, like everyone else can have that life or everyone else can have a really great, you know, loving partner, but I don't really think I deserve that. I don't think, mm. you know, and all of the different, like you said, the five-year-old self put all of the like evidences against me together to determine that I wasn't worth it, but that is just a blatant lie. And yeah. so- just telling her that you're worth the sun, the moon and the stars and the sky. Like stop caging yourself and rise up. Stop caging yourself and rise up. And I kept on hearing the words, you've got this and you deserve love. Yes. Yeah. Raven, this has been such a soulful, raw, real, like unfiltered episode. Thank you for sharing the naked truth. And thank you so much for bringing your journey and bringing your story and bringing your light into this world. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So it's all in the show notes, but for those who are listening, how do we find you? Ravenscott.show is the best place to find out the hub of what I'm doing. I've got a whole content hub of narcissist abuse support from all our guests, from all of my blogs I've written. And I'm building up every day as I can. I'm doing a Q&A on there too. So it's just nice. more of a library built up for you. There's tons of free gifts. I do free sparkle reminders to your inbox every Saturday. I do a monthly newsletter with like self-care per each Zodiac season. And I've got a free workshop on how to draw powerful boundaries and a free audio gift of embracing your empath superpower. So all of that fun stuff is there. And I'm on Instagram at Raven Scott show. Yes. I was going to say also, if you're following me in the whole social media world, I can promise you there will be many places where Raven and I are engaging with each other in the social and where I will be tagging her on posts and where you can catch. So like if I have a post about Raven's thing, you can find her with the tags there too. Yeah. And it's super simple. If I can say one more thing, I just added, Yeah, just DM me on Instagram, free gift. Just the two words, free gift, and you will automatically get those free gifts, the link to sign up for those. Very cool. You figured out how to use the bots. <laughs> I figured out how to use the bots. <laughs> very, very cool. So you guys, DM Raven Scott Show at Raven Scott Show on IG with free gift, and you'll get the ball rolling. Raven, this has been delicious. Thank you so much. It's always delightful to be in your presence and have conversations with you, Jennifer. Thank you. You are so welcome. 
As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.